Hello. Uh, my name is Mike Sheffield. My wife, Karen, and I have been attending uh, Faith Church for the last five years. We belong to a couple of life groups and are uh, active in the Stephen Ministry Program here at the church. I also uh, help Paul Sheely with the uh, church's outreach ministry to the Bridge of Hope Church in Kansas City, Kansas. We heard Luther preach from there uh, last week. Well, it's an honor to, to read today's scripture, and the passage is Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 30 through chapter 23, verse 11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by him said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul replied, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose. Some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoke to him? And when the dissension grew violent, the tribune, fearing that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, he commanded that his soldiers go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him back into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is God's word. Good morning. It's good to see you all here and good to be with you. Um, as Brian said, I'm Steve Peterson, and um, actually uh, this fall, uh, my wife and I have been a part of the church family here at Faith for 31 years, so it's been a while. And um, actually in January, uh, it will be 24 years since you as a church sent us out to be witnesses overseas. So as we're engaging with the book of Acts, uh, we just are grateful for a church who has sent well and has been a part of our journey for, for a long, long time and are grateful for your continued walking with us in this new season that we're here in the U.S. 
This morning, we're going to uh, continue our series in the book of Acts, and um, I love the fact that we're going through this book uh, as a church, um, reminding ourselves of Jesus' call that we are to be witnesses, to be His witnesses. And I hope that you're encouraged as you read through the book of Acts and as we talk and teach from it, because you can't read the book of Acts without just being like, man, God is on the move. And we should be encouraged because the God that we love and serve and know today is the same God who is doing all of this in the book of Acts. And he is still on the move. He is on the move around the world, but he's also on the move right here in Manhattan, in our lives, and in the lives of those that we live among. And so I am excited to to be going through this with you. I hope that you'll be encouraged today as we look at being witnesses in um, this particular passage. So if you remember a f- number of weeks ago, we saw that the, uh, the Apostle Paul was given the ministry specifically to be a witness to the Gentiles, those who were not Jews. And um, a few weeks ago, we saw that he was in modern-day Turkey and Greece, and he was strengthening the churches that were there. And at the same time, he encountered quite a bit of opposition while he was there. Now, in Acts 20, then, we see that while he was there, he was led by the Holy Spirit to return to Jerusalem. I'm just going to read these two verses from Acts 20. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul knows that imprisonment awaits, afflictions await, but if if he, he can only testify to this gospel, he is ready to go. Now, three weeks ago, uh, Brian preached on Acts chapter 22, and we began to see the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit's prophecy there, um, that, that imprisonment and afflictions really did await Paul. He makes it to Jerusalem, and he's in the Jewish temple praying, and at the same time he was there, some Jews, some Jews from Turkey who had been opposed to him had come to Jerusalem to worship, and they saw him in the temple. And they gathered a crowd, and they falsely accused him for, of defiling the temple by bringing a Gentile into an area that was forbidden to them. Well, a riot ensues, Uh, Paul is arrested, as he's being taken into the Roman barracks, he asks if he could speak to the crowd, and he has this great opportunity that Brian preached about to share his own testimony about who Jesus was and what, what he has done for Paul. And if I was Paul at that moment, I'd probably think, yeah, this is it. You know, the, the imprisonment and the afflictions, but I'm able to testify. And then it doesn't quite go the way maybe he thought because the crowd decides they're not interested. In fact, they're violently opposed and call for him to be uh, put to death. And so the Roman officer brings him into the bar- barracks and he's trying to figure out now what's really going on and why the people are responding this way. And that's where we pick up. Uh, the passage this morning from Acts chapter 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, the Roman officer unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God 
in all good conscience to, to this day. Recognizing that there was something going on with the Jewish law here, the Roman tribune, the officer, uh, commands the Jewish spiritual leaders, the, the shepherds of Israel, those elders who were supposed to guide the nation, orders them to come in and hear Paul's case and to judge Paul's case. And Paul begins by saying, brothers, I have lived with my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And this wasn't a boast. This was really Paul trying to find some common ground with the council. He was a Pharisee at one point. And even though these people were lost and didn't understand the truth of the gospel, he knew that many of them were really sincerely trying to live their lives with a clear conscience before God. And he was simply saying, brothers, look, my my motivation is pure. Just like you are trying to live with a clear conscience, so am I. Well, in preparation for the message, as I have been meditating on the scriptures, this uh, statement by Paul just kept kind of coming back to me. And I found myself asking, well, how am I doing at living my life with a clear conscience before God? And how are we doing as a church at living our lives with a clear conscience before God? It's an important question. Uh, for those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ and, and for those who will be witnesses. And it's not about being perfect. We, we know that. Paul himself said that he was the chief of sinners, right? So we have him acknowledging his sin. And yet at the same time, in 1 Corinthians 11, he exhorts us to imitate him as he imitates Jesus Christ. So we have Paul living this life with a clear conscience before God recognizing his sin, but even saying, imitate me, follow me. Now, as I looked at my own life in preparation, I find it to, I I don't feel like I can stand up before you this morning and say, yeah, imitate Steve Peterson as I imitate Jesus Christ. That feels like a tall order that is bigger than who I can be. I I identify probably more with the chief of sinners uh, label for Paul than I do the other way around. But Paul, in the midst of understanding his sin, still calls us again and again and again in the New Testament to live a life worthy of the gospel. That's the phrase he uses in so many of his letters. Live a life worthy of the gospel of God. So what what does this look like? What does it look like to live a life worthy? worthy of the gospel? And is there a way to help us understand it, but also to know how we're doing in in that? And it would be great if I could just give you a checklist, right? I mean, that's always what we enjoy. It's easy. If I can just check off, okay, I got up this morning, I had my coffee because that helps my sanctification, and then I read my Bible, and then I prayed, and I, I finally signed up for Sunday school at church because I've never wanted to do it, but I'm doing that now. And we can check these things off and then say, oh, look, I'm living a life worthy of the gospel. The problem is, is that's exactly how the Pharisees lived. That's exactly how they tried to live with a clear conscience before God, an outward behavior checklist that they could go through and say, look at me, I've got it all done, with no concern about the inner heart change that is needed. So that's not what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. So what does it mean? 
Well, as it happens on Tuesday night um, at the class that I'm a part of here at, at Faith uh, on Making Disciples, we ask the question, what is the most important aspect of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? And I don't know what, how you would answer that. What would you say if someone asked, well, what's the most important thing about being a disciple of Jesus Christ? And we came up with some different answers that were good answers. But I'll give you the answer because Jesus gave it to us. The answer is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your might, and to love your neighbor, to love others as yourself. And I think that if we truly sought to live this out, to love God with everything we have and all that we are and in everything we do, and then to love those around us as ourselves, that that indeed would be a life lived worthy of the gospel. It doesn't give us a specific checklist. It's much easier to check off the things that I do for God. It's much harder at the end of the day to examine my life and say, so how did I do in really loving God today? Did I embrace him and his ways? Did I submit to him? Did I resist sin? Did I cling to his truth? Did I, did I try to listen to his spirit? Did I find my affections raised for him? And, and how did I do at loving other people today? Did I serve them? Did I put their interests ahead of my own? Did I speak the truth in love with them today? You see, with this idea, which I think is really the heart of what it means to be a disciple, it really is, there's only two things on the checklist, loving God and loving others. But those two things have to infuse every single part of our lives. And if we can do that, if we can say, this is our priority, this is my desire, I'm going to seek to, to live this way, that even then when we fail, which we will, it is a life lived worthy of the gospel. It is a life lived worthy of the gospel with a clear conscience before God. So Paul lived this way. I think he really did. And he's saying here in his defense that, uh, you know, I, I've, I'm trying to live rightly before God. And immediately, the high priest orders him to be struck. And Paul very delicately and gently points out that that is against the Jewish law, right? Because uh, an uncondemned man is not allowed to be beaten. And so Paul, yeah, he says, what does it say? God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> Quite the response. But this idea uh, that the high priest even himself looks good on the outside, but it's just a thin coat of paint that you can scratch through to find the corruption within. Why do I bring that up? Well, because if we are going to truly live lives worthy of the gospel, if we're going to seek to really live with a clear conscience before God, we have to remember that in doing so, we invite opposition, we invite hardship, and we invite persecution. Paul, at the very end of his life, writes to Timothy and says, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you want to join us in being witnesses and living a life worthy of the gospel, we also have to recognize at the same time we will be struck on the mouth. 
the opposition will come. We have an enemy in the spiritual realm, and we have a world system that is inherently opposed to Jesus Christ and those who follow him. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter tells us to not be surprised, therefore, by the fiery trials that come. And yet we are. At least I am, right? Because I think we somehow think that living a life worthy of the gospel, a life with a clear conscience before God, should also somehow equal a life free from suffering. I don't think we would say that that boldly, maybe. But there's something there that we believe, well, if I'm living for God, then it's only fair that God would somehow make my life a little easier. But what we're being told here is that living for God will probably make it harder. So what is that about? Well, what that's about is the the foundation of God's kingdom. The foundation of God's kingdom is not fairness. Praise God that we do not get what we deserve, which is eternal separation from God and punishment. The foundation of God's kingdom is grace. It is not fairness. And we don't want fairness. We want grace because in grace we have received forgiveness. In grace, I have a new heart that's been changed. In grace, I have the Holy Spirit empowering me. In grace, I am adopted into God's family. And we begin to understand this kingdom and the foundation of grace and what that means for us. And still my heart so easily complains about the hardships that come. Surely, God, it could be easier. I've been adopted into God's family. (laughs) But, yeah, I'm complaining about the parking space at Walmart. And if I'm really honest, as we're talking about being witnesses, and as we look at that in the book of Acts, not only do I complain about hardships, but I often fail to be a witness because of the fear of what might happen, what they might say, what they might do, how awkward it might be. I have a friend who recently met with some uh, former Muslims who um, have come to Jesus and, and following him now, and one of them was a former um, radical Muslim who had actually been uh, part of a, a terrorist group. They were hungry for the word of God. And they're going back out and sharing their faith with the people, their people. And I'm afraid of being embarrassed. Do we understand what's at stake for them? And they're saying, I'm ready, like Paul, I'm ready to be a witness. And yet, I would say, even though it doesn't make sense, we are. We're still afraid of this awkwardness. Uh, Confession time on last Tuesday, as we were, I was coming in for class, I stopped at Arby's, and that's not the confession that I eat at Arby's, I love Arby's, <laughs> but I stopped at Arby's and um, met this young man behind the counter, I'd never met him before, and he sold me on a cheesesteak, it was excellent, and I sat down, and I'm eating my cheesecake, and I just felt the Lord say you, you, that he wanted me to talk to this young man about him. Oh, man, just, I don't know him, I've never met him before. Jesus, this is going to be awkward. And it was. Let me just say, like in the end, I did it, and I went up and talked to him, and I said, is there anything I can pray for? And he's like, no, I'm good. I'm like, okay, well. (laughs) But what's God doing in his life? I don't know. But why am I so afraid of an interaction 
like that? Why does that stop us from being witnesses? How do we face our fears, whatever they might be? Well, I think Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, this is a verse I often go back to. I'm going to read this here to you. For to suffering you have been called. Now it says here, for to this you have been called. But if you look at the verse beforehand, he's talking about suffering. So for to suffering you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How do we face the fear of opposition, of persecution. We entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. The high priest was not the final authority at Paul's trial. The Roman officer wasn't the final authority at Paul's trial. God himself was the judge. And he always judges justly. No matter what you experience as you seek to live out a life worthy of the gospel, no matter what kind of opposition, what kind of response you may receive, whether you, you lose relationships over it or even employment over it, you can entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. There's only one judge who can tell you who you are and what you're worth, and it is Jesus Christ. And one day... Even if it's not today, one day that judge will make everything right. So we can be a bold witness, living our lives for the sake, for the, for the, for the name, for the worth of the gospel, living a life worthy of the gospel. We can do that with confidence. Well, what does Paul do in this situation? He's in the trial, right? And... Um, and actually, I think as we're going to see here, um, if you look at Acts chapter 24, later on we'll find out that Paul here doesn't entrust himself to the one who judges justly, but tries to take things into his own hands. Because in Acts 24, he'll actually later refer to this, uh, this experience and, and say that it was wrong, that he regretted it. So he's sitting there, though. He's just been struck. He realizes there's going to be no justice in this trial. He looks out at the council and realizes there's two factions present, the Sadducees and the Pharisees that we just read about. And so he cries out because they're bitter enemies. He cries out and he aligns himself with the Pharisees and says, I'm on trial for my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees don't believe in that, so this is a great way, just the thing to get the two sides arguing and get their attention turned away from Paul. And at first it works. I mean, they definitely engage in an argument, but then it becomes so heated that it becomes violent. I mean, so violent that the Roman officer was afraid Paul was going to be torn to pieces. That's what it says. Now, just take a step back for just a second, because I have been baffled as I've looked at this, this uh, yeah, for the last couple of weeks. Who are these people? These are the spiritual elders of the nation of Israel. These are the ones who are to shepherd those people, the spiritual leaders of this people and nation. And they end up in a fist fight over a theological disagreement. I mean, and it is violent. And I just, I have a hard time even kind of believing this. But it's just amazing to me that those who are supposed to be 
the most spiritual, the ones pointing to God, end up in a, in a, in a street brawl. Now, the book of Acts, we know, is structured around Jesus' command in, in chapter 1 to say, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the, and the, whole, the whole book is about how those witnesses uh, spread the gospel throughout the world. Think about this. What kind of witness did those Roman soldiers see as this fist fight ensued? over a theological disagreement. What do you think they left and went home and told their families about the Jewish God based on what had happened that day? Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, prayed for us. He prayed for those who would believe on his name through the testimony of the apostles. And this is what he prayed for. He prayed that you and I would be one even as he and the Father are one. Why? Why? What is so important? He tells us in the prayer, the quote is, so that the world may know the Father sent him. How did Jesus say that we would be known as his disciples? Anyone? By our love for one another. How we treat one another in this church, in this room, together, is a huge part of our witness. It is vitally important. And there have always been factions and divisions in the church, you know, as a whole. But we're living in a day and age with social media where the world has a front row seat as to how we treat each other. And there's a lot of violence going on with words over theological disagreements. I'm not advocating for uniformity or false harmony. There's a lot of important issues out there that, that we should be disagreeing on, okay? And, and there's a lot of issues in the culture today in particular that, you know, I don't know how to approach, but I do know that if we're going to live a life worthy of the gospel, that that is going to mean disagreeing with people, definitely outside of the church, but also within but disagreement within the church is not the issue. That's not the concern. The concern is division. The concern is violence towards one another over these things. So the question is not do we disagree. The question is how do we treat those with whom we disagree? How do we talk about them? What does the world see as our witness? Now, having said that, I will say that we are not responsible for the whole of Christianity presented on social media. Praise God for that. But we are responsible for ourselves. And we are responsible for this church that we call home. And we're responsible to be loving members that allow for disagreement without division. And that doesn't mean we can't talk about our disagreements. We should. It sharpens one another. But what it means is that at the center of those dialogues must be love. At the center of those disagreements and, and discussions must be the fact that I am seeking to live a life worthy of the gospel, and I believe you are too, which brings humility, which brings a desire to have peace even as we disagree. There's a well-known Christian saying that says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, 
charity. And, and here at, at, at Faith Manhattan Church, over the years, um, you know, we've come up with the essentials, the things that we say are, we need to be in unity on. These are not up for debate. So you can go to the church website and look at our beliefs and values and, and know kind of what we've landed on to say this is the core of the gospel and this is who we believe God is and, and these are the things that we're saying we need to be unified in. But there's a lot of non-essentials. There's a lot of them. And in that, there's liberty, there's freedom, freedom to disagree and freedom to still love one another as we disagree and freedom to live our lives out in different ways in terms of those understandings of those non-essentials. But in all things, there is charity, which in this context means love. And it's the love that unifies us and presents to the world the proof that Jesus is who he says he is. And I just want to say that it's actually much more compelling when people who disagree or differ love one another. I mean, if we all look the same and act the same and believe the same and love one another, the world expects that. That's how the world functions. But when we disagree, when we are different and we still love one another, now that is a compelling case for Jesus Christ. And for who he really is and his, the evidence of his, of his love in us. Okay. So we have this desire to live a life worthy of the gospel. We know opposition will come. We need to love one another well so that the witness that we want to be goes forward in truth. So let's look at the end of this passage here. Paul is still in prison. He's not been delivered. His outburst uh, didn't, didn't seem to go maybe the way he had planned, right? And it appears he's deeply discouraged. And we just read that as long as he could testify to the gospel, he was ready to give his life, and yet things haven't gone the way he thought they would, and he is deeply discouraged. And we read this, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, just looking under the surface a little bit, I think that's an interesting way to comfort somebody, right? I mean, think about it. The, the phrase, take courage, could also be translated, be of good cheer. So, hey, Paul, be of good cheer. You're not getting out of prison. Be of good cheer, you're going to stay in chains and you're going to be shipped to Rome. Be encouraged, Paul. And Paul tells us, though, that in 2 Corinthians, that God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in every trial, every single one. So this has to be comfort. And yet I know that I can, and I'm sure everyone here can think of trials in our past where we didn't really feel God's comfort. But if it's true that God comforts us in every single trial that we have, then maybe our definition of comfort is wrong. Most of the time in the West, and definitely in my own life, I equate the word comfort with the word comfortable. Lately, uh, it just got cold enough so we can finally turn our fireplace on at home. Uh, and I love to sit early mornings in my chair in front of the fireplace, right, uh, cup of hot coffee and a nice fuzzy snuggly blanket 
And uh, now I, get a, I have a grandson, eight weeks old, so get to have him in my arms. That, that's comfort to me. That's comfortable, right? I mean, that's amazing. But we've also all had trials that have felt a lot more like the disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, where it's like hurricane-like winds and waves, and we thought we were going to drown. And if I was in the boat with the disciples and we really thought we were going to die and we go to wake up Jesus because he's in the back sleeping and we wake him up and he looks around and he passes out cups of coffee and fuzzy blankets, that's not comfort. You see, we want the fuzzy blanket, but so often what we need is a concrete bunker. God's comfort is not always comfortable, but it's always what we need. It is always what we need. We usually want God to simply take away the suffering, to remove the storm, to heal the illness, to restore the relationship, to relieve the pain, to open the prison doors and let Paul walk free. And sometimes God does. He'd already done that once for Paul in Philippi, right? So why not again? And he still works miracles today, and there is nothing wrong in asking God for deliverance. But often, instead of God delivering us out of our suffering, he chooses to comfort us in our suffering. He sustains us in the storm, and he meets us in our pain. The problem is is that if we equate God's comfort with deliverance, the fuzzy blanket, we will miss the comfort we need in the middle of the storm. Well, finally, lastly, I want us to look at how the Lord actually then comforted Paul, what he's actually said. He says, take courage, but then he says, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul, deep in his discouragement, was told to take heart. Why? Because God wanted him to be a witness. There really is a theme in the book of Acts, right? A witness. Just as he had in Jerusalem, Paul was to be God's witness in Rome. And I want you to think about that for just a second because God is allowing Paul, whom he loves as his own son, to stay in prison, stay in suffering. Why? So that those who have never heard about him in Rome might hear. God loves the lost. God loves the lost. He is seeking them out, and he's inviting us to be a part of that. And we should praise his name for that because all of us, if we are now disciples of Jesus Christ, we're lost at one point. And sometimes he lets our suffering remain in our lives that we might witness to his goodness and his love and his glory even if he doesn't take it away. I want to close just with a story from our our own lives Um, Ellen and I, we went to India, that's where you sent us, and uh, in our first few years on the field, we engaged in, an, 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 uh, sorry, my, after, I don't know how they do three of these every week, the, the, the pastors are amazing here, uh, but it, it was an, uh, we entered into an adoption process, that's what I was trying to get out, um, for our oldest daughter, Anjali. And we filled out all the paperwork and all of the things that had to happen, and it was a long process. And we finally get a call, and they say, we have a little girl for you. And so we travel six hours away to the orphanage there in India, and we meet our daughter. And, and we're like, yes, this is it. And they said, all we're waiting for is one piece of paper. As soon as we have that, 
Uh, you can take her home. It should be like less than a month. Seven months later, we weren't allowed to visit, and our daughter was still being cared for by someone else six hours away. One piece of paper. God, you could do that like this. We prayed, we prayed, we cried out, and we despaired. He didn't take away the suffering. Now, in the midst of that, we were getting to know a couple who were Hindus, uh, and they lived across the street from us, and they became really close friends. And, of course, we were trying to tell them about our God and about Jesus. And um, so we would tell them all these things about how great he is and how wonderful and loving and powerful he is. And then they were there in our home, and they saw the reality, which is that God wasn't doing anything, and we were a mess. We were the worst witnesses in the history of Christianity, I'm telling you. And we were like, they're never going to be interested in our God. Well, finally, after seven months, God did answer our prayers and allow our daughter to come home with us. And a few months after that, the wife came to Ellen, and she and her husband had hit their own crisis that had put them into deep, deep despair. And she said to Ellen, I watched you go through what you went through, and I wouldn't have survived. How did you do it? It wasn't because our lives were perfect that she was interested in Jesus. It was because she saw the amount of suffering that we had went through, and she was in it in her own, and he was the only thing that she could think of that might make a difference, and it opened the door for the gospel, and she believed. God comforts us, and he comforts us for us, for our comfort, but he also comforts us that we may glorify him. Open your heart to his comfort. Be witnesses. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Entrust yourself to him. Love one another well here. And then in those times of deep suffering, ask for his comfort. It probably won't be a fuzzy blanket, but it will glorify him. Let's pray. Father, we just say thank you so much for your word. So much for, for seeing how you were at work in the book of Acts. And we, we just declare that you are still at work today. And we want to be part of that work. We want to join you in what you're doing. And Lord, we know that that will mean hardship and suffering. And we ask, therefore, that you would comfort us. Comfort us, Lord, in ways that will enable us to stand firm and to give you glory. And Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to love one another well. As we, even as we seek to love you with everything that we have, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand together.
before we go, I'd like to lead us in this prayer. Let's pray this together for our lives and for this church. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O gracious King, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is dying that we are born again to eternal life. Receive this benediction as you go today. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Oh, don't you get shy.